Hello and welcome to Time for a Cherry Pie and Coffee with me, Bex. And me, Dr. Amp. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're here to talk about part five of Twin Peaks The Return and as you can probably guess what our favourite part of the episode was. It was perhaps the best example so far of Lynch's warning before the show started, that you should keep your eye on the donut, not on the hole. Yeah. Because <laughs> I think we were basically watching this hole, fixating on it, getting all <laughs> caught, up, caught up in it. And then uh, for this reveal uh, in this week's episode, I think it was a wonderful lesson that we can expect some uh, very interesting twists and turns in the upcoming season. Nothing is at all predictable. It's going to do whatever it wants and go in all kinds of crazy directions. Yeah, there's been so much speculation about what Jacoby and his gold shovels meant um, from us, from loads of people on Twitter and podcasts. And I know Mark Frost is really active on Twitter. And in my mind, he has been looking through all these theories and quietly chuckling to himself this whole time. They knew what they were doing, didn't they? In misdirecting us like that. They knew people would theorise about it. I think they were sitting at home when this was airing about, you know, what is it, 40 minutes into the episode and sitting there with a very large glass of, of red wine <laughs> laughing to themselves about how what they'd done was going to send people watching Twin Peaks round the bend. <laughs> but we will get to all of this in due course when we talk about the episode. Um, first of all, we want to thank everyone who's been listening to the last couple of episodes. We've been having some really great feedback. We've had some really great chats with people on Twitter talking about theories It's just a really great, fun community to be a part of at the moment. So we're here to talk about part five. Let's crack on. We thought we'd tackle part five in a similar way to the way we approached parts one and two, which is sort of looking at it storyline by storyline, place by place. Yeah, and there are going to be uh, elements which do cross between different strands of the story. So the first bit we're going to tackle is the whole section, which is in Las Vegas, involving the casino, Dougie Jones, the Dougie Cooper character, and what's really going on there. So the episode begins um, with a scene which involves the two hitmen who were in the previous part, who were watching uh, Dougie's house where he was having the liaison with a prostitute jade and they are basically talking to somebody who might be their controller and it appears that they've been contracted out to carry out this hit on dougie and we know that might be linked to the device which they placed on the car in the previous episode and they've got the car under surveillance they've been watching it when they're reporting about the fact that it, um, it hasn't worked out the woman they're speaking to is really agitated by things yes yeah, so she dials what looks like a really long number and then what looks like a text message that she sent is Argent, and then the number two. And then wherever it's being received from, you see the picture of the light bulb, and then you see this black box in a wooden bowl, and the two little red lights blink twice. Yes, that might be linked to the fact that there's a two in the Argent two. Yeah. Um, certainly it's unclear what happens later on in the episode when the box reappears, but it could be that that's part of the code. So Argent, I mean, that could be a few different things. We learn that later on it's probably related to Argentina. But alternatively, uh, it could be to do with silver. Yeah. It could be to do with money. Money. Yeah. Yeah. Um, There are lots of things it could be. And to be honest, I think we're not going to take any bets on what it actually is. 
because <laughs> we keep getting this wrong. But I think Argentina is probably where it's meant to be. Um, but it's odd that you would have that in the message, unless it's like a speed dial number that comes up uh, yeah. when you're making the call. And she clearly feels that her life is in danger if they don't succeed in killing Dougie Jones. Whether they know that he's Dougie Jones or not, they probably don't really care. But it's interesting that they, they keep driving past the house to check if the car has gone off, but they never make any attempt to like go into the house or, or look for him or, or try and get him any other way. They're just quite happily waiting to see if the car works. But I think one loose end that it has tied up is that last time out we were speculating about who might have hired them to kill Dougie Coop. And one theory I had was that maybe Evil Coop had arranged for them to be there to kill Dougie Coop if the good Coop emerged in his place because of that whole thing from Mike about how now one of you must die. Um, and I thought that it might be linked somehow to... Um, uh, who's the woman in the... Daria. Film? No, the, the woman next door. Oh, Chantal. Chantal. Yeah where he tells her I want you and Hutch somewhere. Yeah, he wants them at a specific location at a specific time. Yeah, yeah and I wonder if one of them might be Hutch, but I don't think they are, because no. I think last time we learned one of their names, and this time we learned the other name, and neither of them is Hutch. Yeah. So I think that's gone, but who has sent them, we can speculate later. And certainly it's worth flagging that there must have been a reason why Evil Coop was invoking the need to use Chantal and Hutch at some point. So that part of the mystery must be coming up but i do yeah. wonder if that's actually to do with him going to find ray at the prison yeah um there's something that must be going on there because it was more a kind of i'm going to need you in a few days time at this location at a certain place etc so it could tie up with that instead and then we see dougie leaving for work or rather being pushed out the door and told to go to work by janie e., who's also trying to take sunny jim to school and she mentions that he's won £425,000 because she's counted it all and says that she's hidden it in a secret place and that Dougie needs to call them, but we don't know who they are, and set up a time to pay them fifty grand. So this is presumably the debt that he owed to someone, which again is my other theory as to why someone was trying to kill him, but now I'm not so sure because this link with that mysterious woman in the office seems to be something completely different. And then as they're on the doorstep, and she's trying to get him to go to work. You have this really weird moment where he looks at Sonny Jim sitting in the car and starts to cry. And I don't know if it's some realisation on his part that this isn't his life, that there's something unreal about this, but he, he suddenly seems incredibly sad. Well, in part four, I think it is, you see Sonny Jim, he's quite chirpy, he's very friendly, he's very happy, he's trying to help Dougie Coop. Uh, make his pancakes and and be reacquainted with his home life etc but it's weird from the moment he leaves the house he looks very sullen he's got this blank look on his face this expression which is kind of hopeless and on one hand it could be coop or the character in some way is recognizing some sadness in his son but also maybe he knows that there's something wrong with the situation like you say certainly there's an element of him maybe realizing that if he has taken the place of somebody else, maybe he knows that other changes are happening in other people around him. So maybe, you know, if Dougie was a, a real figure, and we say there's a big if here, yeah, and he's now been taken out of the world and replaced with Coop, or good Coop in his place, is there any possibility that similar things are happening to other characters in that same environment? So maybe his son is now losing his spirit in some way. 
and that's why he's blank, he's a different person, maybe it's starting to leech out. And the one weird thing that we did notice was if you watch it, I think they keep looking back and forth from Coop to Sonny Jim, and the last time they do it, it could just be a stylistic thing, but what's noticeable is that Sonny Jim, he blinks, but they play that scene in reverse. It's a very subtle thing, but I think this ties into the fact that obviously in the lodgers people are speaking backwards. In the real world now, we know that Evil Coop, who is, inha- who is inhabited or co-inhabited by uh, Bob, had trouble saying the word very in the previous part as well. And we also have the strange mother and son who live across the road from where uh, Dougie was. And there she was saying 119 instead of 911. So speaking backwards, but not using the the backwards speech pattern. And then finally, Janie verbalises what all of us have been thinking, uh, which is when she tells Dougie, you're acting weird as shit. <laughs> which is the first time she's openly recognised it. Yeah. And then she also says, don't do any more drinking and gambling. Yeah, which I think it's implying this, the plot which the Dougie character is in, in his own life, is that he's caught up in some debts uh, involving this money that they owe to some people. But it could just be that his sort of gambling and alcohol addiction has got him involved with the wrong crowd, like some kind of local mafia or something. That's why he needs uh, to pay them back. Yeah. And then we see the hitmen go past the car again in Rancho Rosa. And then this time another car comes around the corner and it's got loud music blaring and there's several people in the car and they slow down and look at Dougie's car as well. But infinitely less inconspicuous than than the hitmen were being. Yes, these people probably aren't there doing some undercover work to track him down. They're there to cause trouble. Um, And that obviously becomes apparent later on. So then it follows this really interesting scene where Dougie is dropped off at work by Janie he kind of is having the same thing where he's mimicking people. He's slow to work out exactly what's going on. He's unaware of his surroundings, but but things are potentially starting to trigger as they were in the previous part. Memories, perhaps, of his proper good Cooper life. Mm. Um, but what's interesting is that they use a lot of interesting phrases in this opening section, especially where firstly you've ha- uh, you've got Janie saying, you know, if you're having one of your episodes again, implying that maybe he does have blackouts, maybe related to alcoholism, I don't know, but maybe he has these periods when he's unsure of what's going on. To me, that's interesting because it links a little bit to but like the blackouts that Leland might have had if, you know, if he was being possessed. So maybe Dougie is a placeholder and he can get frequently possessed to do things and he's unaware of things when these are happening and maybe people around him notice these things and they are giving him a pass when he's behaving like this. It still doesn't make too much sense because they are being very generous with him, but it's un- it's unclear. But specifically when he's getting out of the car, she says, you know, pull yourself together, get to work. All these phrases which go back to that idea that there are forces in Dougie's world which are moving Coop in the right direction and trying to usher him to do certain things which lead him in the right direction, which we presume is to regain his sense of himself and ultimately return to Twin Peaks. Yeah, and then he's wandering around outside the office and there are there are these kind of sculptures in this open space. There's a sculpture of a cowboy yeah. um, or sheriff or, or something something like that, um, which he stands and looks at. And then behind it, there's some kind of white abstract sculpture that's got red balloons all over it. And it's just more red balloons. Why are there all these red balloons around in Dougie's world? They're at Sunny Jim's party. They were in the house of the woman and son who live opposite in Rancho Rosa and now they're just randomly adorning 
public art sculptures. And later on, one actually appears slightly deflated on the... Is it hanging off the arm of the statue uh, towards the end? Yeah, you can see it kind of wavering yeah. in there. It's It's got to mean something. I just don't know what yet. I, but then I thought Jacoby's gone, shovels meant something. And it turned out not so much. I think we all learnt a very important lesson there. <laughs> and then he gets another incredibly fortunate coincidence when he meets a colleague who ushers him into the office. And he, he keeps on meeting the right person at the right time to move him forward into the next thing he, he needs to do. And even the statue, it's pointing in the direction which gets him in into the building he needs to go. So he, he's looking for... It's odd, he's almost looking for the right stimuli. Mm. And when he sees them, he follows them. It's like an, it's an instinct he has. And that's interesting because Cooper always worked off instinct and intuition. Yeah. So, so there is some sense of that in his character, which is still there, even in this slightly subdued state that he's in at the moment. But what do you think about what that cowboy thing was? Because I wasn't sure if it meant, if he was looking at the gun and he was thinking like he's a... He's recognising being a lawman in some way. Or is it related to, like you say, a sheriff? Is he remembering Truman or something? Is there some other aspect to it? Because he does blink a little bit when he's looking at it, almost like he's recognising something. Yeah. And then his colleague, who's carrying a tonne of coffee with him, um, says to him, oh, you often dreamland again, Dougie. And it's the second time that someone's used that kind of turn of phrase because Janie E previously called him Dreamweaver in an earlier part. Yeah, there's something not right about this environment. But I'm not sure if it's a dream. It's almost like it's a an altered reality or an influenced reality. Yeah. Where the lodgers, like we were saying last time, might be influencing events within the framework of the real world, which makes certain aspects of it bend reality a little bit to suit how they want Coop to go in the right direction. Yeah. And then he gets in the lift with him and all he wants is the coffee. He desperately wants the coffee. So maybe he's starting to kind of come back a little bit. And coffee was such a, a, a sort of classic element of Coop's character that he loved his uh, his damn fine coffee, as black as midnight on a moonless night. <laughs> and is it his colleague who refers to it as damn good Joe, mm. which is another kind of phrase that, yeah. that Coop used to use. So all, all these little triggers keep, keep popping. So it turns out he works at this place called Lucky Seven Insurance, and seven is a number which keeps appearing in this series and it has also appeared quite heavily in the original Twin Peaks run also Fire Walk With Me as well so Seven seems to be popping up again obviously this is Las Vegas so maybe it's just Seven is in the lucky number which is why it's featuring so heavy here but again it's another allusion to the gaming imagery which we keep seeing in Dougie's world yeah because their logo is like a pair of dice and if you look at the I mean they look like kind of booklets or promotional material that's stacked up in their kind of entrance lobby where he goes into the office and they've all got different combinations of numbers on so there's one that's a six and a one one that's a four and a three i just love all the prop detail that they've put into mm. this he's there to have like some conference meeting with lots of other members of staff now again it's the same thing that's happening again other members of staff are being very generous towards him they're helping him around they help him get seated they usher him into the rooms etc uh, he interacts with a guy called tony who's played by tom sizemore who clearly is aware of his gambling and drink problems and says he covered for him whilst he was away these last few days. So I think we know from Janie that it was like three days that he's been uh, missing. Mm. But also he does notice the weight loss, which is odd, which some people are doing, some people are not doing here. Yeah. And it's quite interesting, you know, when he walks into that room, he's wearing his crazy bright lime green blazer and, and trousers. and 
but everyone else is still dressed in suits in that office and no one says anything. Yeah. But to be fair, that does seem to have been his wardrobe before. So maybe they're just treating him as a bit of an eccentric the whole time anyway. And on a side note, the coffee that he's given is apparently Frank's coffee. Now, we do meet the character of Frank, but there's two things that are interesting here. You know, firstly, it's a reused name in the Twin Peaks universe because obviously there's Frank Truman as well who's floating around now. I think that it might be a reference to Frank Silver, who was Bob. But also, given the tone of some of the later events in the episode involving what happens at the casino and also in the roadhouse later, it's interesting that Frank would relate quite heavily to Blue Velvet, which Mm. has very heavy overtones in this episode. And then when they sit down um, and start their kind of group meeting, the Tony character starts talking about some policy or other, and this kind of green light flashes across his face. It's almost like a, a reflection like if you turned your watch in such a way that it caught the light and shone it onto your face or something like that, but it's green. And Coop immediately just says, oh, you're lying. So again, it's like the old Coop who worked heavily on intuition, but this time it's being suggested to him by his environment or he's taking visual cues, audible cues to respond, but he's responding in a, a kind of Coop-like way. I'm just wondering, actually, while we're discussing this, whether do you think this is what Coop in his normal state could see anyway? Do you think he always had this power in a weird kind of way? That's how he, you know, he always worked on intuition didn't he? and yeah. his gut feeling. But do you think that, although we didn't see it as the viewer, could Coop see these things in some way? Could he, you know, is that how these things were represented to Coop? And that's how he would always work off his gut feeling and say, you know, he's lying. This is what we should do. We should follow our instinct with that. Were there, was he always experiencing cues? And we're just seeing it now as an influence as the viewer. But maybe that's how he always saw things. Yeah, because maybe this whole sequence in Las Vegas, or certainly the events that are unravelling around Dougie Coop's kind of immediate vicinity, are filtered through his mind in some way. So what we're seeing is his perception of reality, rather than, you know, what we observe is not nature itself but nature exposed to our method of questioning. So maybe that is what he sees. Maybe that is his way of interpreting his instinctive assessment of of the people and places around him. Yeah, so it's almost like a very childlike alien view of the world, isn't it? Mm. But maybe he sees things in terms of symbols and events that mean things. Everything is... uh, Well, everything has potential meaning. Yeah. Um, And maybe that's how he sees it. Maybe we're seeing it as something which is odd and supernatural... But that was always part of Coop anyway. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's not actually out of the ordinary. But then his boss clearly thinks that there is something really weird going on. And he's not happy that he's disappeared for days. And he gives him a bunch of files to go home and review, which he then spends the rest of the day just clutching to himself. Mm. But it, it's it's a really interesting conversation because some of the language that his boss uses starts triggering more things in his mind. His boss says, oh, he's one of our best agents. Mm. And Coop just sounds like, oh agent and then he says uh i want you to review these case files which is the name of the episode and it's a theme that crops up again in other story strands but these seem like again the the world around him helping him out trying to get him to remember who he is and one interesting thing i remember actually from the scene when they're actually all around the table is that the person sitting opposite him who could actually be the frank guy 
Hmm. He actually has a plate in front of him with a donut. And what I thought was interesting was that didn't trigger anything in Coop. So I'm not sure if these things have to be given to him for him to realise what it is. And then he would, in a Pavlovian fashion, respond to it once the stimulus has been given to him over and over again. Um, but it was interesting because there was clearly one in front of him and it didn't trigger anything. Whereas the coffee, maybe because it had already been introduced to him, was able to stimulate some feeling in uh, in Coop. Because I'm kind of thinking, look, it's going to be coffee, donuts, cherry pie... <laughs> You know things like that. Maybe some earbuds. You know, <laughs> all kinds of things which are which are part of him that are going to be triggering these events. But the donut didn't do it. I think that could be important at the moment. Yeah. Um, what was the deal with Frank being so happy with his uh, green tea latte? Because he didn't want it. He obviously never had one before. He was like, "Oh, I'll try it." But he's going to have one again. He is. He, he seems almost kind of giddy with childlike joy at, at drinking his green tea latte. But that's also how Lynch always portrayed people's love of coffee. It was just the most wonderful experience, you know, the perfect piece of pie, the perfect cup of coffee. It's almost like he's, I mean, maybe there's an element of him helping Frank, because by taking away his coffee, he was forced to try something else, and that was actually better for him. Yeah, because Frank never really drank his coffee anyway, we know that. Exactly, so So maybe this is an event where Cooper is actually exerting some subconscious external force on the world by helping solve a problem that maybe Frank didn't know he had. <laughs> maybe we're really stretching it here. I don't know. Yeah, and then later on we see him desperate for the bathroom again, but again not seeming to realise what he's supposed to do or where he's supposed to go. And again, a really helpful co-worker kind of ushers him in and lets him use the ladies. But she says in a very kind of flirty way, like, oh, handsome, maybe I'll let you kiss me this time, which suggests that he's been a bit of a womaniser and has tried it on with her in the past. Mm. Um, but maybe she's liking this new good coop Dougie better than the uh, the old Dougie I think what's nice about that as well is when she's uh, leaning with her back to the door the look she had on her face is one that reminds me of the one that Donna's sister is it Harriet had when she's writing that poem mm, yeah about the full flower of the evening or something and she's kind of saying these two alternate uh, lines from a poem she wants to write. In the end, she comes to the conclusion that a fusion of both of them is the best. But she has this moment where she's just thinking to herself. I think it's very typical of this. I mean, in a series when things are moving very slowly, it's it's weird that they're spending a lot of time on characters showing them thinking and contemplating events as well. I think it's maybe what's, that's kind of what we're meant to do as well, not just expect everything to come at once and be delivered bang in your face. It's meant to be something which they present to you and then you think about it and interpret it over time. Yeah. I also kept looking at her necklace when when she was standing there and I kept thinking, is it supposed to mean something? And in the end I decided that actually it was just because I quite liked it. <laughs> <laughs> That's Christmas sorted. <laughs> and the one thing we should mention about the fact that he works in an insurance company is whether this does tie to the event in part one, which yeah. is when an insurance broker or salesman turns up at the sheriff's office in Twin Peaks and says he's looking for Truman and Lucy can't work out which Truman it is and he doesn't seem to know either. Um, now, I, I don't think any of the people in the Lucky Seven insurance company that we've seen are the same as that guy in part one. But if you think about the fact that maybe time is running in a different way here, we're seeing events in a different order, mm. you could see a situation where somebody from the insurance company could end up going to Twin Peaks because they know something about Dougie looking like Coop or vice versa. Yeah, and you know what I'm thinking now? 
he left his business card with Lucy. So they have his number, but also I wonder if you can see anything on the business card. I wonder if you freeze frame it. It if, maybe has the, the logo for Lucky Seven. Yeah, yeah, we've got to go and look up that up now. <laughs> <laughs> so many things. Because yeah, it was very weird, like like wine insurance broker would be coming there. Yeah. But maybe they're coming there as a response to what's already happened in Las Vegas in the past. Mm. Right, so then staying in Las Vegas, we then go to the Silver Mustang Casino, which is where Dougie Coop became Mr. Jackpots, winning these 30-odd jackpots in a row. And what's strange is that the like the floor manager of the casino is there. He's clearly in trouble and he looks completely shocked and confused about what's happened. Because like we were saying before, it's weird that no one was saying this dude keeps winning. There's something wrong. No one investigated it. They just let him take the money. If that world is being influenced by the lodge in some way, I'm using that very loosely, whilst Cooper was actually there, Maybe now he's gone, that influence has gone. So it's back to normal. And it almost seemed like the look on his face was this realisation that he had no idea what he'd been doing when he handed over that large bag of cash. Why no one intervened. Maybe that protection that we thought in terms of the red room symbol that was floating above machines, etc. That clearly isn't there anymore. Now yeah. Cooper's gone. I mean, no one's winning jackpots. So it must mean that it was following him around and now it's gone its influence has gone and it's left everyone wondering what the hell they've been doing. Yeah. And two people who really want to know what the hell's been going on are these obvious gangster types yeah. played by uh, Jim Belushi and... Um, Robert Nepper. Yeah, from iZombie. Yeah. And uh, Prison Break. Yeah. yeah. Who, who turn up and want to know uh, what the hell's happened. And, and you can see this Mitchum Brothers plot becoming very much... Um, Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway style gangster mafia kind of influence in the whole thing, which I bet will also be played for laughs as well because he always likes to mix these things up a little bit. But the thing about Robert Nepper's character, I mean, he's clearly the violent, punchy one in the in the brother uh, relationship. He reminds me a lot of Frank from Blue Velvet, but probably not as much as the character later on in the Roadhouse reminds me of Frank. A lot of people remind me of Frank in this episode, and he basically beats up the floor manager for giving uh, all the jackpots away to Dougie Coop and then fires him, dude leaves, and then the deputy to him gets his job and is told to keep an eye on if Coop is going to return. Now, we actually don't know at this point whether Coop will return there or not. I mean, maybe his plot involving the casino is over, but it's interesting that they're in it. I mean, this could be a, a cameo and they're never seen again, or it could be the start of some plot involving the debts being called upon again so it's clear that he does rack up these debts in places and yeah because we've kind of got multiple malign forces kind of gathering on the edge of dougie coop's world now we've got the hitmen who have been trying to kill him through the car and obviously don't don't realize that he's not at the house uh, we've got these gangsters now at the casino who want to know if he ever comes back we've got whoever this mysterious people or people's that he owes 50 grand to, that his wife is aware of. And potentially, um, he's going to get fired because he's clearly not looking at any of his case files and wouldn't even know what to do with him if he did. Because when we next see him, he's just standing around the statue, clutching onto them. And we should say that when the Mitchum brothers actually turn up, they're accompanied by three women as mm. well, who kind of stand at the back of the room and kind of looking around, posing against the wall as the floor manager is getting beaten up. And 
it's all a bit weird and surreal. Again, very blue velvety. The one thing I did wonder about is, and again, it's a, it's a complete stretch, is whether, although we see three of them, I think in the credits they're Candy, Sandy and Mandy, mm. whether there's a fourth one. Mm. Because there was obviously that reference in the previous part to, in this discussion of something being missing, they were looking at the at the bunnies in the box. And I yeah. wonder if maybe when Lucy is saying one of the bunnies is missing, maybe it's related to an event which is happening somewhere else but still tied into the you know the bigger plot line so, as well so they're they're the bunnies yeah but one of them is missing it could be <laughs> <laughs> so then we also go back to rancho rosa where boy and the mother are still in the house the mother is passed out and the boy is is kind of looking at the window looking at the car because he saw the hitman put something underneath it and he goes out, and I just absolutely love this bit. He, he walks out the house, he stops at the edge of the pavement, he very carefully looks both ways, left and right, across the road, makes sure there's no traffic, very carefully crosses a road uh, to go and play with a car bomb. <laughs> it's just this beautiful contradiction of this boy, you know, trying to be as, as safe as possible. Someone's once told him his, his green cross code, or whatever the equivalent is in the States. And he, he does this uh, in order to go and look at a car that's about to blow up. <laughs> so I couldn't quite tell what he was trying to do, whether he was just curious about this thing that they put under the car or whether actually he knows something in some way and was trying to switch it off. I, I, I don't think that we can know at this point. Yeah, it goes back to the idea that these two characters, the mother and the son, might be versions of the Chalfonts or the Tremonts, and maybe they're observing this situation and they maybe are looking out for uh, Dougie Coop, knowing that Good Cooper is back in his body. Mm. So maybe they're worried if Dougie were to come back and get in the car and start the car, it'd blow up. But then the second car that had looked at it earlier, uh, the one with the loud music, it comes back and there are more of them this time and three of them jump out of the car and immediately start trying to steal... Dougie's car and they throw a couple of rocks at the kid to get him to to leave so the kid doesn't run back home he just kind of stands nearby watching as the three of them they they break open the car they start to hotwire it and of course it explodes um, immediately and the kid doesn't seem particularly perturbed by the fact that he's just seen three people blow up and there's one of them is just a, a charred burning body on the ground but he, he doesn't seem scared. He doesn't call anyone. He doesn't try and wake up his mum. He, he goes back across the road and just goes back to his window and just watches it through the window, watches what's happening as the car carries on burning. And his mum wakes up, finally. She's kind of sort of slumped in the chair at the back. And you get this weird music <laughs> starts. I don't, I don't know what that was all about. We may never know. But this incredibly dramatic music starts happening as the mother wakes up. And I don't know if this if this is also a signal that maybe she thinks that Doggy Cooper's dead when she sees the, the car burning. And does she feel that she's failed in some mission that she had? I, I don't know. Or maybe David Lynch just wanted to put some music in. <laughs> uh, we, we may never know. But the one thing that struck me about this scene is that we know that this is a day on from when 
good coop emerged into the world in Dougie Coop's place, right? Because he went home for the night and now it's the next day. But in that house, it doesn't look any different. The, the mother is still wearing the same clothes. She's passed out in the same chair. I think the stuff on the table look the same. I think the kid is in the same clothes and he's eating from the same box of saltines. And it's as if time hasn't moved mm. in the house. It's a strange thing. And again, you can still see the balloon in the background of this mm. scene as well. So that's a callback to this same image again and again and again, in the Las Vegas world at least. Um, and the one other thing about the car blowing up is now, does this mean that the hitmen will come back, see the car has exploded, and think that Dougie Cooper's dead? Yeah, because they're not going to be able to tell who the bodies are because they're going to be burnt. Presumably the police are going to turn up and eventually it will come out that as to who the identity of, of the, the dead people are. But in the meantime, the hitmen may think that Dougie Cooper's dead, which will presumably feed back to that woman in the office. And who that feeds back to from there, we, we can only speculate who that might be. So there's a brief scene at a car wash where Jade is dropping off her car to get clean, the same car that she used to drop off Dougie at the Silver Mustang Casino. And the key point in this scene is the room key, the Great Northern room key, is being found in the car, the, the uh, 315 one that Cooper used to have. And originally we thought that it may have still been in the suit, so we thought he had it the whole time, but it's clear it's been found in the car. And what she does is she realises it's his and she posts it back to the Great Northern because it has the address on the back. I think it clearly says, you know, please send back if found uh, to this address. The one funky thing about it is it does say, as its slogan, is a clean place reasonably priced. <laughs> Which is strange because that's how Cooper described the ideal accommodation he would have. But he didn't know about the Great Northern at that point. No, he, he was recording a tape for Diane, wasn't he? Yeah. He was saying, that's all I need, a clean place, reasonably priced. Yeah. And he mentions that to uh, Harry as well. Yeah. You know, it's the same phrase, but now it appears on the actual uh, key ring. So one wonders again, if, is this an example of a manipulated reality? Uh, it's not an alternate one, but there's influence in this world, which is changing things. Yeah, like, like d did he somehow recreate the key himself from his own memory? And that these things are, are coming into existence because he is thinking about them, remembering them. Is that how he remembers the, the hotel? Or is that how someone listening to the tapes would think of the hotel? Mm. Oh, and God, I... now my mind's just going off in all sorts of directions. But again, the key could be the thing that's been missing. The something is missing. Yeah. So we don't know if that's going to happen. We don't know who will find it. We actually don't know when it's going to be found. Because is this happening a little bit before the events we're seeing in Twin Peaks itself. Yeah, because I can't place what's happening in Twin Peaks yeah. alongside anything else. So it could be the fact that the key is being sent now. It could be that it's already been sent or it's going to be sent in the future. We don't know at the moment. Um, but one thing we do get out of this is the fact that this is a clear link now between the Dougie Coop storyline and Twin Peaks. So we have a solid link here between what's going on with Good Coop back in Dougie Coop's body and an item the key has now been sent from las vegas to twin peaks so we can see that the the links are starting to form to pull the events back to twin peaks ultimately yeah and i'm wondering if when the key arrives in twin peaks presumably they'll need to pay the postage on it or something will they be told that it was sent from las vegas hmm. um, which which will immediately 
kind of draw suspicion because some someone at some point has to realise that's his room key. Well, I think there'll be a moment where they might just think it's any old key and then somebody will realise that was the room that Agent Cooper was in and that can be the, the triggering event that makes people wonder, you know, where it came from. Mm. And then the last thing that we kind of see of Dougie Cooper in Las Vegas, he's riding back down in the lift and he, he gets into a lift and then he stands with his back to the doors because he doesn't get the concept that he's meant to turn around and then everyone's trying to kind of barge him out of the way because he won't get out of the lift and he's still completely befuddled he's, he doesn't really understand he's got to go home and he just stands outside the office clutching his case files staring at the kind of statue of the sheriff cowboy figure and he's looking at the feet in particular yeah and it's interesting because obviously he's looking at the shoes there are many things this could mean it could be related to the whole you know leo johnson new shoes thing but more likely it's to do with the fact that when he came through the portal his shoes were left behind so when he came through from the the room with the american girl in mm. and he came through the plug socket remember the, the shoes are left behind yeah so he doesn't have his shoes there's something about him being incomplete at the moment and he notices maybe that's something that, we, that was left behind it's representative of part of him that was left behind in the uh in the lodge world in mm. some in some way and he recognizes there's something missing there yeah and then the episode ends with the credits rolling over him just staring at the shoes and a security guard kind of comes along and tells him oh there's no loitering you need to move along but then he doesn't actually move him along he just he he walks off and leaves him there it's like there's some kind of radius of influence around him that is causing people to behave in a helpful way when they're near him i don't know very, very strange. Not the ending we were expecting. Yeah, certainly because it didn't end up at the roadhouse with music playing. Yeah. But we'll come back to that in a bit. Yeah. So then for the first time in a few episodes, we return to Buckhorn, where the mystery of Ruth Davenport is ongoing, which obviously had the body involving the decapitated head laid next to the body of a, um, a man. The head was Ruth Davenport. The man is unknown at the moment. And in the autopsy, they showed that uh, he hadn't eaten anything. But curiously, they find in his stomach a ring now, this is the first thing that happens in the episode actually because we're talking about it by plot strand rather than uh, chronologically but in his stomach he has a gold ring which says to dougie with love janie and i think this is a wonderful moment because for everything that we were thinking certainly to have this moment where this ring relating to the dougie plot line in the stomach of the buckhorn corpse it suddenly turns everything a little bit on its head. Yeah, because it's obviously going to kind of throw the Buckhorn police off slightly into a different direction. Because I, I, I really love the the Emmy and, and the, the jokes that she keeps trying to crack during the autopsy. And she's like, oh, maybe you want to swap with a wife because mm. there's, a, there's a wedding ring. And of course, the, the police not being able to access the information about whose fingerprints it is, which we saw last time, they've now got this new line of inquiry. And surely, with a name like Janie E, there can't be that many Janie E's in America, and certainly not that many who are married to a Dougie. And that ring is going to lead them straight to what has surely got to be the only Dougie and Janie E who are married <laughs> in the entire country, isn't it? <laughs> we hope so. Um, but there's this issue of what this ring actually is doing. Because, obviously, when Dougie Coop was returned to... Uh, the Black Lodge, when he kind of deflated, etc., disappeared, there was only left uh, that gold ball bearing, mm. um, a gold sphere. 
now one wonders if that's the the switch that's been made you know he was like the duplicate was made with the you know using the gold sphere but maybe the cost of that was the ring was used in some other ritual in order to create the uh the double in the first instance and obviously there's a lot of mythology involving rings in the twin peaks universe anyway because you obviously have you know cooper's ring the one that was taken away by the giant and was only returned when the clues were solved or rather when Coop found out that all the things that the giant said were true I think it's also the owl ring all these different things so these rings are very important but I think there is something funny about you know the way that the, the body was left you know head and corpse there's something fishy about whether there was something what's the word maybe ritualistic about the the way the body was laid out mm. and certainly in the secret history there's lots of this weird stuff about dark arts and things being you know these strange things being performed to access dark energies and one wonders if maybe there's a link to that so some ritual involves you know killing two people fusing the bodies together maybe by having the the ring as like an item from one of the characters it's then used to make this uh this dougie coop character later on who's then returned in the form of a of a gold ball bearing but I'm trying to think as to whether Dougie Coop was wearing a wedding ring when he collapsed. He was wearing the Owl Cave symbol ring. We know that, but I can't remember if he's wearing his wedding ring. Yeah, so our prediction is that just as the key is going to tie Las Vegas to Twin Peaks, the ring is going to tie Buckhorn to Las Vegas. Yes, yeah, so then we cut to the Pentagon a bit later in the episode. We have Ernie Hudson, Winston Zedmore from Ghostbusters, who's humorously named Colonel Davis in this. And I wonder if that's some callback to Stargate, because Don S. Davis was the colonel in the, in the Stargate universe. Yeah, he, he was, he was, wasn't he Colonel Hammond, and then he got promoted to General Hammond yeah. at some point. I think he started off as, as Colonel Hammond, yeah. And they're involved in this because... When the fingerprints were run through the database, I think by the person who performs the autopsy in the previous part, it must flag with their database saying that somebody has accessed information which pertains to a military person uh, and they get it flagged in some way. And what we hear is that over 25 years, Briggs's prints have been called up 16 different times. And the way the conversation goes, it almost seems like the people at the Pentagon are aware that Briggs is missing. And they're also looking for him too. They don't know where he is. They certainly don't think he's dead necessarily. They know that he is doing something or has been doing something and they've been trying to track him down. But a lot of these leads have turned up to be false leads as well. Yeah, because he's clearly expecting this to be another wild goose chase where they're going to get there and there's going to be nothing there. Because presumably they have no information about what the police and Buckhorn were searching for the prince for. All they know is that there was a there was a hit that you know came up with the access denied firewall. But what it means, I think, is that the suggestion is heavily that the body might be Briggs. Mm. We don't know, but it but it's it's strongly being suggested. But I think in this series we can't take anything for granted. The fact that these fingerprints keep coming up, though, that could mean that Briggs has been doing things for the last twenty five years. It could be that Evil Cooper's involved in some way. Uh, using his fingerprints somehow to get things done it could be that there are doubles of Briggs wandering around and that's why they're being flagged in different locations but 
that gets into a really crazy territory i think it's it's a bit weird it's almost like they're leading us to believe that as we speculate in the last part bobby thinking that his father died in a fire the day after coop went and met him soon after the events of the original series that's probably going to be a complete red herring now and for a period of time potentially quite a lot of time uh briggs must have been alive doing things so they're planning to fly out to buckhorn to find out what's going on which is presumably going to bring them together with the buckhorn police but also he says something to her about if it'll probably turn out to be nothing but if it is something we have to inform the fbi and why they think that the fbi are going to want to know and need to know the information if Briggs is alive or if it's a genuine hit we don't really know but does this mean that you know gordon cole and his team are somehow involved in the search or have crossed paths with the military in the past in investigating this has major briggs become a blue rose case yeah because in the secret history there are ties between cole and briggs and the whole blue rose mythology through dougie milford as well so it could be the case that there is some bigger network which already exists that would make sense in her as we mentioned the last part there was that bit in the beginning of the secret history where they mentioned that the dossier is found at a crime scene which was redacted by two fbi field agents now maybe this is what's going to happen maybe they'll investigate or the pentagon will investigate they'll bring the fbi in two field agents will find the dossier at the crime scene and that could be the start of where the dossier fits into everything as a result of being found in that in that location and speaking of fingerprints we also see Tamara Preston examining the photographs of the coupe that we know, the old coupe, and the mugshot of bad coupe, and then also looking at the fingerprint. So she's got the, the kind of fingerprint cards and also up on the computer, and is kind of looking at them side by side, and you notice something really weird about the fingerprints. Yes, they, they hang on it for a while, but it's clear that the left-hand ring finger fingerprint is reversed. I don't think the other ones are, the other fingerprints, but it's clear that they have a reversal of fingerprints on that particular finger. And that's interesting because obviously that's the finger which I think the owl ring is worn on. Yeah. So it wouldn't be a, a surprise that that would be a finger that would have a affected print. I don't think they were implying that it was a different fingerprint. I think it did look like it was just flipped over, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I'm also wondering if her kind of attention to detail and things like this is going to move the case forward in some way and that it's that attention to detail that makes Gordon Cole want to give her the dossier to start looking through you know all this paperwork. Now near the beginning of the episode we return to Bad Coop who's being incarcerated in a federal prison somewhere in South Dakota. I still don't know if it's the same prison which Ray is being held in. I'm not sure if they explicitly state that it is because that was the Yankton prison which he Soul, uh, he downloaded the uh, plans for on lots of covert information. Yeah, I mean, presumably there is more than one federal prison in South Dakota, but it's it's feels like it would be a shame if it wasn't the the same one. And he's going to find Ray somewhere in there. And what he's doing is he's sleeping in his cell, and it's really odd. He he seems very calm in there. And again, this speaks to this idea that maybe this is all part of the, of a plan that he has. He doesn't seem particularly agitated at the moment. So maybe it is the same prison that Ray's in and it's it's part of a bigger operation he's running. And then he says, like, and now food is coming. And he says that before the guard appears with the food. 
And this might imply that, well, two things. One, he might have the ability to predict or have some kind of foresight into events which are happening. Um, the other thing is, is he able to actually control events in some way? Is he able to get this person to bring the food at a certain point? It's unclear, but how he knows, it's not as if he's looking at a watch or has any idea of what the time is. It's just an odd moment that they throw that in, almost to seem that he's fully comfortable and aware of his surroundings. He's not panicked by being holed up in prison. And certainly that wasn't the impression that we got from uh, his interactions with Cole and uh, Rosenfeld. He seemed very okay about things. He just mm. wants to speak to Cole and get out, I think. Yeah, and then he gets up to wash his hands and he looks in the mirror. You get these flashbacks to the final episode of season two of kind of Doppelkoop and Bob laughing together in that really mind-bending kind of shot of the two of them just kind of laughing and laughing and laughing. It's really creepy. And then as he looks in the mirror, his face starts to morph kind of half into Bob's face. It's, it's very, very creepy. And then he says, good, you're still with me. As if he needed confirmation that Bob was still in there. So maybe is Bob weakened somehow from lo losing the Garmin Bosia? Or was he concerned that Bob might leave? Because of course, when Leland got caught and imprisoned, Bob decided to just smash his way out immediately. Um, but obviously Bob isn't concerned about staying with Doppelkoop in whatever the circumstances are that they're in. And also it's telling us that this really is the the dark half doppelganger, Coop, mm. who's actually in charge. You know, it, like the good Cooper was in the lodge, the bad one escaped. And Bob is hitching a ride with this bad Cooper. We don't still really have a clue what he wants or what he's been doing in that time. But certainly he must be important for the next step. But the fact that Bad Coop is asking if he's still there means that he must need him for something. Maybe he needs to bring Bob with him so Bob can transfer to a different person. Uh, or maybe there's some power that, that Bob has that he um, he needs as well. Yeah, and it was interesting that in the flashback, they also showed the flashback of Coop looking in the bathroom mirror, of, of you know that, that final shot where he smashes his head against the mirror. But then they cut it before he says, how's Annie? Yeah, and the Annie mystery is still hanging over events in some respects. I mean, obviously, the secret history does not contain Annie at all. Later in the episode, we see Norma for the first time, and there's there's not really a place for it, but there's no mention of, of Annie involved uh, there as well. So it's interesting as to why they could be being deliberately coy on whether the Annie situation is going to be uh, addressed. The one thing I would add is just before he gets the food, he washes his hands. Mm. And I think this is a nice moment because it recalls a very key feature of Bob in the original series when he was inhabiting Leland. Because there he had this weird obsession with, uh, with cleanliness. I remember there's that scene where Leland is very upset with Laura for I think dirt under her fingernails at the mm. dinner table. It's the same even with the idea of him saying, I want to brush my teeth. Yeah. You know, he has this weird OCD thing about being clean all the time. Um, so I thought that was a nice callback. But again, it's it's just reminding us that it is, I think, the Frank Silver iteration of Bob who is in this series still. Yeah. And that Bob is inhabiting Bad Coop, but Bad Coop is actually the one who's doing stuff. Yeah. Um, this is not a 
character who is being overly influenced by Bob. He is bringing Bob along for the ride and he's probably unleashing him when necessary. Yeah, and then later on we see Badcoop being given the phone call that Gordon Cole had told the warden to give him and then tell Cole all about what was happening. So we see Badcoop making his call and we see the warden and a couple of guards sort of in a control room who are watching and listening. And Badcoop kind of looks up at the the camera and says, in a very kind of stilted, kind of robot-like, kind of bobbish way that we were talking about before, that kind of, I want to brush my teeth, he says, now that everyone is here, and it, it, it feels again like it's it's maybe more Bob than Badcoop, perhaps, when he's doing that. Hmm. I mean, maybe he needs Bob's powers involving electricity and communications, etc., that's why he's channeling him at that point. He lets him sort of bubble to the surface, maybe, to perform the the act that he, that comes next. Yeah, because he he dials a ton of numbers on the phone, and then the alarms and lights in the prison just go haywire. Sirens blaring, lights flashing on and off, which is always a bad sign in Twin Peaks that bad things are happening. Some of the monitors in the control room start showing weird kind of cookery programs. I'm not sure if those are real programs or if things that they've just bizarrely staged in order to put on a, a TV screen in the warden's office. And then amidst all of this kind of carcophony, uh, he makes a phone call. And actually, before he makes the call, he is addressing Warden Murphy. And he says, you know, who am I going to call? He says, oh, shall I call Mr. Strawberry? <laughs> oh, he's not taking calls. And that's just weird. Yeah. Because it's unclear who this Mr. Strawberry is, but it seems to physically shock warden murphy now i'm in two minds about it because i'm not sure if it meant that it was like a code name or something maybe it's like a link to defense or police side or the prison side of things and it's like some code that the prisoners shouldn't know about or something or some secret mission or mm. you know undercover character or what i thought was is it something really sinister like some character from his childhood or something or some uh, memory that he's tapping into that Warden Murphy knows about in order to kind of unnerve him a little bit. Because it reminded me of that bit. Again, going back to the moment when Leland has been imprisoned, when he's been caught by Coop and Truman and Hawk and everyone, and he turns around whilst he's being interrogated and he shouts at Coop something like, uh, what happened in Pittsburgh? Hmm. Where he references the event where Caroline was killed, Cooper was stabbed by Wyndham Earl, etc. It's clear that Bob has a knowledge of lots of different events in people's lives. And I do wonder if his presence here, like we were saying, is really to add some supernatural power to the bad Coop. Because bad Coop isn't, ne isn't necessarily a supernatural character. He's just the bad... He's like the distillation of the bad portions of Coop into yeah. one character, and there's a good one as well. Now, this one maybe needs the Bob to make the call, to have these powers to unnerve people. Um, and certainly, even when he's looking at the camera, it reminds me of those bits in Fire Walk With Me when Cooper's doing that test where he leaves the room, stands in front of the camera, comes back in, and he's trying to see if he can see himself uh, on the cameras when he's moved back into the room. And then eventually he's standing there and he sees Philip Jeffries walk past. There was something about the way they did that on the monitors. It just seemed... Um, like a callback to a few different things that all involved 
Bob and the Black Lodge elements of some of the inhabitants as well. Yeah. So then he makes the phone call and I think that the the recordings that the warden were making didn't catch what it was that he was saying and it connects somewhere and, and the only thing that he says is the cow jumped over the moon and hangs up and then we see where the call has gone and this was the moment where I think we both simultaneously just audibly gasped when the uh, the title card of Buenos Aires came up. He's gone and done it. Has he got a Bowie cameo in this whole thing? Yeah. Mm. So it's it's gone to the same kind of black metal box sitting in a wooden bowl in the same building in Buenos Aires that the, the woman who had hired the hitmen had called earlier. So we now know that she was also calling that same place. And the, the little lights flash again and then the box crumples in on itself into a kind of shiny little rock. <laughs> it's the only way that I can describe it. But the act of crumpling, the way it crumples in on itself, it really reminded me of the way Cooper crumples in on himself in the black and white section when he's talking to the giant at the very beginning of part one, when the giant's saying, no, you are far away. And Cooper just kind of like folds up in on himself and vanishes. Just the way that it did it reminded me of that. I think what's really interesting about this is that obviously the world of Twin Peaks is filled with moments where we see and hear electricity. It's all over the place. And often I think it's linked to the arrival of one of these lodge spirits. It can be to do with a possession or inhabitation about to take place, etc., but what's really strange is that in these scenes, it almost implies that at least Bob is able to control electricity and communications. He's able to actually influence like the power in this building and the communications network. And that's actually not the first time we've seen it, because remember, he was able to... I don't remember how he did it. He recorded the call that Dario was making, yeah, which is also strange on his recorder. And you do wonder if he has... Or the Bob half the inhabiting Bob side of uh, mm. Evil Cooper is able to have these powers over controlling electricity and controlling communications as well. Mm. It just almost seems like the external influence is spreading a lot more with Bob, which tells us also that Bob is still powerful, even though he doesn't have his Garmin Bosia yeah. um, as well. And the other thing is, if he is controlling these communication circuits and networks, do you think that's to do with the fact that if this is the prison which Ray is at, that's why he had the plans. Do you think he needed those plans to work out mentally how to map out how the network of power worked in this building or something, and that's what he needed the information for? Yeah, because presumably Ray still has some information that Bad Coop really needs to get his hands on. Um, it, it could be coordinates, um, that conversation that he had with Dari where he showed her the card, has anyone shown you the symbol before? They don't give you coordinates. He clearly needs to get to Ray somehow. And maybe having all the plans and with Bob being able to control communications and electricity in some way, he will be able to get to Ray within the prison and get the information that he needs. Hmm. I can see some kind of awesome prison break happening at some point. <laughs> but I think the other bit here is the fact that that communication box folded up. I did wonder if the cow jumped over the moon was in some way a code that was a threat saying I wasn't taken to the Black Lodge. Because you know he was talking to the character who he thought was Jeffries. 
Yeah. And he realised it wasn't. But the voice on the other end, whoever that was, said, you're being taken back tomorrow and I'll be with Bob again. Maybe this message was saying like the cow jumped over the moon somehow meant I've gotten away. I, you know, I, I haven't been captured and I'm still on the run and I will continue to be on the run. And maybe when the box collapses, it's actually him uh, literally destroying the communication line that he has with the Jeffries character by saying, you didn't get me. That's the message he's given. And uh, that's the last you'll be hearing from me for a while. Because it was weird that it kind of um, kind of crumpled up into this little silver blob. Mm. But I do wonder if it was actually destroyed. And maybe he was going around destroying these nodes as well to tell whoever this Jeffrey's person is, I mean, who the identity is behind it, you know, that he won't get caught. And again, it ties into the fact that maybe Jeffrey's was the one who had organised the hit. On Ducky Coop. Yeah, because he's the person potentially who's receiving the call the argent to call from the woman in the office yeah because that means that he was simultaneously trying to get somebody to murder both good coop and bad coop yeah and and why you would want to take them both out i don't know maybe he knows it's dangerous just to have any of them around because <laughs> remember when he tells me fire walk with me he's like do you know who that is mm. we don't know if that's because he thinks this is the good coop or the bad coop or he just thinks that Coop is just too dangerous at the moment. Maybe he knows that Coop is special in some way. And it's an element of taking both of them out. Yeah. Because Mike in the Black Lodge obviously says one of you has to die. Maybe Jeffries wants the whole thing wiped out, if indeed that is Jeffries at all. Yeah. Right, so now we return to. Twin Peaks. Yes. And there's quite a bit going on in Twin Peaks now. There's quite a few different story strands emerging um, in the town. So we get our first uh, view of Mike Nelson, who is now a kind of middle-aged car salesman, is he? And he's interviewing some kid called Stephen for a job. But it's not so much an interview as just a complete bollocking, telling him, look, your CV was rubbish, you didn't fill in the forms get the heck out of here, basically. Uh, and this kind of straggly, slightly unwell-looking young guy kind of wanders off. And then Mike, I think, does he call him an asshole or yeah. something? Which is kind of rich given how Mike used to be. Yeah, it's weird how they've done both Mike and Bobby, who have, you know, you know they were like the, the terrible two, you know, from original Twin Beaks. Yeah. And now they've grown up and they've matured. And it's almost like, they've become the people who they used to stand up against. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they used to rebel against this kind of nonsense, but now they're middle-aged. One's a policeman. The other one seems to be doing quite well, running a, a car dealership. And they're both potentially going straight now as well, mm. which is interesting because I suppose less so for Mike, but, you know, Bobby was involved in... I mean, he killed a man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big thing. Um, yeah, and along with Mike, they were both involved in uh, running drugs in twi- into Twin Peaks. Through Leo and Jacques, yeah, uh, and everyone. So and selling it's, them in school. Yeah, it's odd that they're now potentially upstanding members of the community, <laughs> um, and getting disgruntled with the new generation yeah. of, of Twin Peaksers yeah. for uh, getting up to no good and looking a bit scruffy and not filling in a form properly. Kids today, is yeah. the problem. Because all I remember was them, you know, that phrase, "Mike is the man," <laughs> and there was a sense of, sort of youthful rebellion there. 
and now he's just like a manager in a car dealership and it's it's he, he seems so different but also it's almost like the original inhabitants of Twin Peaks have just all matured in some ways which makes it all the more notable that certain characters haven't like Lucy and Andy yeah and I don't know if that's going to play into things but you know some characters have moved on a lot uh, and it is funny that they're playing against type a little bit compared to where you thought they might be based on their trajectories proposed in the original series and then you also get this funny scene between the new sheriff Truman and his wife where she basically comes storming in to complain about the leaking pipe and they have a, a, a I was going to say a long conversation but he doesn't really say very much it's more like a long one-way conversation about buckets rugs broken cars the twins coming to visit just all manner of stuff and I, and I do wonder if we're never actually going to see the new Sheriff Truman's kind of home life, but it's just going to occasionally be hinted at that all this crazy stuff is, you know, the next time she comes out, it's like the black mould will be halfway up the wall uh, and it'll just all be a disaster. And it's that same exasperated look he has with his wife, Doris, that he also had with Wally as well. Yeah. <laughs> he just kind of lets people just talk at him and he lets it wash over him and he gets on with uh, with stuff. A couple of things I noted here was, well, first, it's a minor point, but he talks about a character called Sammy who's going to look at Doris's dad's car. And that may be how they're going to bring in Big Ed and his garage, etc. The other thing is specifically what Frank Trim is saying to Harry, because mm. he's saying that he's that uh, Harry's waiting on test results and he's going to check in tomorrow. So I know that there's a lot of views to the opposite, but I really do hope that there's a Michael Onkin cameo somewhere. Even in just his voice only on the other end of the phone, it'd be kind of nice. It'd be weird to have him in it uh, so intently, like on the phone to Frank and that, if he never really appeared. But then again, like we were saying before, Lynch and Frost don't really care about nostalgia. They, they're actually quite keen, I think, to play on fans' expectations and what fans might think they want from the series. They're not necessarily going to get it. Uh, they might have these things just dangled in front of them again and again and again. Um, but it was interesting that they're playing up this fact that Harry is ill, but he's still uh, in contact with everyone. It's something that's taken him out of action very recently. Yeah, yeah. So we also get our first proper trip to the Double R Diner. We've seen their takeaway packaging kind of used around some of the other scenes, but uh, we get to see Norma again, Shelley again, and uh, they're both still working there. The the German waitress, she's still Heidi. There. Yeah, yeah. I... Very briefly, she walks past at the front of the counter yeah yeah, yeah. The, the same chef is there but i got confused because they called him toad and i thought toad was someone else but yeah so in the original series toad was the customer who was always there the big guy yeah i remember there's an episode where hank moves him to the kitchen when they're worried that uh the food critic mt wentz is going to be there yeah or is already there and they move him to the kitchen yeah and then they have to stop him trying to eat the food out of the pan in the kitchen so he was called toad in that but i think the toad they're referring to now is obviously the chef the chef was only credited as the chef in fire walk with me but i think in the script he was called toad if that makes sense okay so he was never referred to as toad by name on screen but now he is being called toad which is kind of confusing because there was another Toad who was often referred to in uh, in the original Twin Peaks, certainly. Yeah. Shelley's still working there and we get to meet her daughter who she referred to before when she said that she felt that her daughter was with the wrong guy. 
And her daughter is played by... Um, Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, who you probably know from things like Veronica Mars and... Um, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, yeah. She comes in asking Shelley for money. And at first you kind of see it happening in the distance from Norma's perspective, where she's clearly keeping an eye on the conversation that... I'm going to keep calling her Lily now, but it's not just Becky, that Becky is having... Because her character's name in Veronica Mars was Lily. Yeah. And I only watched the entire thing all over again, like, three weeks ago. So she's watching the conversation that Becky is having with Shelley, uh, kind of very intently, because she clearly knows that there's something going wrong. And she kind of has a bit of a heart-to-heart with Shelley, saying, oh, you know, you've got to help her. It's the third time she's asked you for money recently. Uh, If you don't help her now, it's going to be a lot harder to help her later on. And Shelley says... Oh yeah, we, we kind of both know how this kind of thing goes. Because they've both had fairly disastrous relationships with really bad guys before. And they can clearly both see the warning signs in this relationship that Becky has now, which turns out to be with... Stephen. Yeah. Uh, who was earlier getting kicked out with no job from Mike's car dealership. And I think they're married, are they? Because... Yeah, in the credits, their surname is... Burnett, so it's Becky Burnett and Stephen Burnett. Yeah, and he has cocaine with him. Yeah, so it's clear that uh, Stephen is dealing drugs as well. Uh, he has a supply with him. He says that he used up some of the cocaine before his interview that he had at the beginning of the episode with Mike, and actually at this point, Becky snorts some as well. And I think he has this air of early Twin Peaks bobbiness to him. Mm. Uh, kind of a bit reckless, obviously dealing drugs the bad boy kind of character, a very bad influence on Becky, certainly. And they're having this conversation, but when uh, Becky has taken the cocaine, it's kind of interesting. It then kind of transitions into the scene of her just in a convertible driving next to Stephen, where she's kind of got the wind rushing over her face, just looking directly at the camera. And it's, it's right in her face, just capturing every expression as she's listening to some weird kind of 50s pop song as well yeah there's kind of bright sunlight shining down on her yeah and i think this is a you know it's a quite a long sequence but it does at that point quite strongly uh, reflect laura palmer she's like a very laura style character here you know not i mean physically you know she's young she's blonde she's dating the well she's married to the bobby like character in this case uh, she's on drug she's clearly got problems as well i think there's a there's a discussion when you know when she's talking to shelly she's saying she doesn't like this job i think she works at a bakery she wants a different mm. job and shelly's trying to stabilize her a little bit but there's something weird in her eyes she looks very much like laura the scenes in fire walk with me where she's uh looking up at the fans it's going around even that kind of sad grin she has uh at various points, but most notably, you know, at the end of the episode when she's staring at the angel and, you know, that mm. kind of look she has of sort of deepness in her eyes when she's thinking about things, but it's almost masked by the drugs kind of taking all the pain away. She does look a lot like that. And I do wonder if she is going to be the, you know, the Laura Palmer of this um, of this season in some respect, or maybe they're just going to have it as a side plot. And of course, we also have this mystery now of the way that the Laura in the Black Lodge kind of disappeared and flew off, which was then followed by Leland telling Cooper 
to find Laura. So it's as if Laura has gone somewhere. So has Laura re-emerged in the real world? Could Laura even re-emerge through Becky in some respects? Yeah, I mean, I think we've had a situation where good Cooper has emerged with the world of Dougie Jones. So it just there was something weird about that scene with Becky that on one hand you can say, oh, she is like the new Laura Palmer character. On the other hand, she could actually be channeling her, like you say. And that would be a really weird way to bring Laura back into the real world somehow. But again, we could be talking nonsense. Yeah, I mean, could, could Laura have even become like a lodge spirit now that could kind of inhabit people? Yeah. I mean, she was quite strong, wasn't she? She could resist the inhabitation quite a lot. And certainly she survived in the Black Lodge for a long time. So one wonders if she's acquired a different set of skills and powers that maybe allows her to, you know, inhabit people out in the real world as well. Maybe Becky is one of the vessels that she's co-inhabiting at the moment. And then we get a really brief scene where you see Andy and Hawk going through case files in the conference room and they're just flipping through the pages and Andy says, have you found any Indians? And Hawk just kind of looks at him with that kind of expression of just like, what are you doing, Andy? And he just says, no. <laughs> so they're clearly still looking for something that is missing and Andy has potentially still not really got the right end of the stick about what it is that they are looking for. But I think this does tie into actually what you were saying in the previous episode about Lucy's conversations. I think it's really important not to write off Andy in the scene at all because remember that he's the one who solved the mystery of what the pictogram was in Owl Cave. He realised mm. it was a map. So you can almost imagine that somebody like Andy's going to take all these things at face value, treat it all very simply. He'll see the facts for what they are, and he often is the person who tends to figure these things out. And I think even Hawk knows that, which is why he's got him there. Just He tolerates what potentially are silly questions because he knows that Andy just thinks in a different way. Mm. It's almost like Andy can cut through all the nonsense and he just sees very simple patterns in things. And often that does seem to lead to what the answers are. So I think it's very important that Andy is still there looking at stuff because he's going to be the one who might hit upon something that leads somewhere. And again, it might hark back to Lucy because maybe there is something about the bunnies still. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's just that they, they're picking up on things which, which other people just gloss over. Uh, it, it's almost like they have an attention to a different set of details. Yeah. Um, and then after so much speculation as to why Jacoby was getting deliveries of shovels and then spray painting them gold on some crazy contraption, I, I saw some brilliant theories out there. People were linking it to the groundbreaking ceremony of the Great Northern where you see the images in the old movie that uh, Ben, ben is, is, yeah. is watching in his room. I've seen people kind of link it to the kind of playing card symbolism of a spade is the, is the gold got some magical quality to it and I, I i think that they knew that they were gonna lead fans on a bit of a merry dance with this one they they knew that by drip feeding in this weird information people were gonna hypothesize they're gonna come up with wild theories uh, i i do reckon they've had a good laugh about this because as it turns out Dr. Amp is selling his uh, gold dig yourself out of the shit shovels. That's the only way I can describe them. 
Uh, what, what is it he, in the little title card that comes up that he describes it as? Yeah, so he's uh, he's decided to sell for twenty nine ninety nine Dr. Amp's gold shit-digging shovels <laughs> to dig yourself out of the shit. <laughs> and he's, he's got some kind of online channel that he broadcasts out of out of his hut. In yeah, it's like a live nowhere. feed uh, yeah. at 7pm. 7, 7 Dr. Amp turns up. He's got this new persona which he uses. He's clearly not the same Dr. Jacoby we, <laughs> uh, we left 25 years ago. He's kind of a bit of a conspiracy nut as well. He's very anti-corporation and he's... What's interesting though is he's he's got this idea. I think there is there are seeds of, of sense in what he's saying. Um... That's the idea where, you know, you must see, hear, understand and act. It's almost like there's a message in there which is buried in this spiel. So I think there is something to this. It's not just like a jokey infomercial which mm. he's thrown in. But there's a a message that maybe people are kind of obscuring themselves from the truth of what's happening. Again, this goes back to this idea of what is real and what isn't real. And they're playing with it a little bit, but they are... They are, you know, presenting this idea as something that the audience should be thinking about. You know, don't take everything at face value. And if you are stuck, there are ways to <laughs> dig yourself out of the shit uh, in some way. And we know that he has at least two viewers. Yeah. Because we get Jerry Horn uh, kind of watching on his tablet while having smoke yeah. out in the wilderness. And Nadine is also watching and kind of nodding sagely along, going, hmm, yes. Yes, wise words of wisdom from uh, Jacoby there. It's interesting because in the background of the scene that she's in, you can see um, lots of colour swatches and fabric books around. And I yeah. do kind of wonder if, she, you know, maybe her idea for silent drape runners has panned out. I don't know. <laughs> or maybe she's still kind of um, a bit of an oddball and just has this stuff. But it's kind of a bit strange that she was sitting there surrounded by that stuff. I don't think it would be a callback to the drape runners just for the sake of it it almost seems like he's still doing it quite seriously yeah but um, no sign of ed no right. sign of ed actually uh so that could be interesting because in the credits certainly norma is still norma jennings hmm. uh, shelley curiously is not johnson she's not briggs she's just shelley so we don't know what's happened to her and they must be keeping that back for a, um, a specific reason yeah so certainly we don't know who the father of becky is yeah. But Norma is still Jennings, implying that she never married Ed. Um, but they could still be together now. I mean, maybe Nadine is alone and they, you know, and they live separately. Yeah. But then she also never ditched Hank's name, even after uh, they ended. So you'd think that she would have wanted a shot of that, but maybe it's easier to keep it. Yeah. And what is interesting about the Jacoby scene as well, it's a minor thing, but we've lost that whole Hawaiian motif now. Yeah. It's weird now he's in this hut in the woods and what I don't really get at the moment is I'm pretty certain in the secret history after the events of Twin Peaks I think he goes back to Hawaii to write his memoirs and things and I do wonder why he's come back or when he came back. Yeah. Uh, you know, He could be another one of the characters maybe he's been away and he's coming back to Twin Peaks and I do hope we see more of him actually. Ideally maybe something beyond his uh, little enterprise in Golden Shuffles. Um, but certainly it was fun to see him. And it was also a fun moment to play with the audience, I think, a little bit as well, given it was the first thing we saw in the Twin Peaks world with an old recurring character. And it ends up to be uh, a bit of a troll on <laughs> on uh, Frost and Lynch's part. 
Yeah, and I remember when we watched it, as the realisation dawned of this kind of fantastic prank that has been pulled uh, about the shovels, we both just started laughing. I was just laughing and laughing and laughing. And I couldn't even be mad at them for kind of pulling the wool over our eyes like that and, and making us think that there was something really important going on and actually it's some kind of crazy infomercial that he's making and he's selling gold shovels to people. When I realised that we had just basically been pranked by Mark Frost and David Lynch, it was glorious. I hope half the things that are in here are just them leaving these amazing red herrings everywhere and just saying, yeah, yeah, go on, just try and figure it out. Just, just try and understand what's happening. You're not going to be able to, but have fun trying. So the final uh, event actually set in Twin Peaks itself is a scene at the Roadhouse, which curiously doesn't take place at the very end of the episode, but about three quarters of the way in. So you think that when Roadhouse music starts up, it's the end of the episode. But in reality, they've already, episode five, they've subverted that whole thing by having these scenes potentially earlier on in the episodes. They're not going to stick to a formula for every every hour that they're doing. Um, but this band is playing. There's a saxophone player there as well. And it reminds me of uh, Fred Madison, Bill Pullman's character in um, Lost Highway playing the saxophone, kind of very frenetic saxophone playing as what's going on around gets kind of quite crazy and intense. I mean, what we do get in this scene is that there's this really creepy guy smoking we know from the credits who he is but he's just kind of sitting there in a four-person booth but on his own smoking the barman comes over or one of the owners and it's actually the guy who played one of the hitmen in Mulholland Drive who kind of tells him to put his uh, cigarette out or something and stop smoking yeah so Chad the deputy shows up and we already don't like him because he was being very mean about the log lady, which uh, is you know the worst thing you can do in Twin Peaks, be mean about the log lady. And he says, oh, I'll take care of this, uh, and kind of gets the, the barman to leave, kind of asks for a, a cigarette off the this creepy guy, and he hands him an entire pack of cigarettes. And as he walks away, he opens up, and there's at least $1,000 in there. So there's clearly some kind of bribe going on, Maybe it's related to the drugs that are coming in and being sold in the school. Uh, we know that Chad is now definitely up to no good and that this this creepy guy sitting in the booth that he was talking to um, is going to be involved in some kind of criminal element in town. So then this guy carries on smoking and there's a table of four young women sitting nearby and one of them kind of starts to flirt with him asking for a light it all gets really very weird and nasty as he, he kind of grabs her and starts saying really abusive stuff. And it was actually a very clever way of throwing the audience off. When it initially cuts to the roadhouse and you see the band on stage and you think it's the end of the episode, you get this sense of kind of relief because you think, oh, the end of the episode has come. Now I'm going to start processing everything that I've seen because nothing else is going to happen. And when it then carries on, when it cuts to him sitting at the table, it's really jarring because you're expecting it to finish and suddenly your mind is snapped back out of where you thought you were within the episode. Because these episodes are so dreamy, you don't really notice the passage of time anyway. And so by doing that, it immediately puts the audience in a really kind of unnerved state that there is something wrong because what you thought was the end of the episode isn't the end of the episode. So it, it's kind of fr freaking the audience out slightly when introducing this really nasty piece of work character which i think was a very clever thing to do yeah and this guy he kind of he channels a bit of i mean from the twin peaks universe he channels a bit of leo johnson there mm. a bit he's 
clearly a bit psychotic. But also he reminds me a lot of, say in terms of how he behaves, of uh, Frank Booth, again from uh, Blue Velvet. Mm. It's kind of crazy, threatening, and a physical, very visceral presence you know, in the roadhouse. What's most striking, though, is actually that we see who he is in the end credits. Mm. So this guy is credited as Richard Horn. Mm. Now, the first thing that jumped out when we saw the name in the credits was actually that, is this the Richard of the Richard and Linda, who uh, the character who may or may not be the giant references at the very beginning of part one as one of the clues he's given for Cooper. If he is, it's unclear who the Linda is. Um, I think the only other two women who are named in that scene are a Charlotte and an Elizabeth. Um, I think there's, there wasn't a, a Linda there. But the fact is, this whole idea of him being a horn implies that he must be related to the Ben Horn dynasty in some <laughs> way. Uh, so obviously, you know, speculation is rampant about whose kid he actually is. Now, I mean, you know, so it could be Audrey. That would be, it'd be tough if it turned out to be Audrey. I think no one wants to see Audrey have a child who turns out like that. Um, yeah. Certainly no one wants to have a child who turns out like <laughs> like uh, Richard Horn, but I think that would be particularly weird if they brought it to be uh, Audrey as, um, as his mother. Who else could it be? It could be Ben. I mean, he certainly slept around a lot in Twin Peaks. could yeah. be Jerry for the same reasons. It could be Johnny, but they've kind of written Johnny out of the whole thing anyway. One thought we had was actually, could it be Sylvia? Could she have had an affair, knowing that Ben was having affairs everywhere? Could she be like a half-sibling to... Audrey and Johnny in mm. some way because I think the character um, uh, Jan Darcy who was Sylvia is back in this series so it'd mm. be interesting if there was something there as well that would also make her would it, oh, it wouldn't make him a horn though would it unless he took unless she didn't change her name yeah so he isn't Ben's son but he is still a horn yeah and then I suppose the most outlandish thought we've had which still remains vaguely plausible is whether Richard Horn is actually maybe the son of Donna. Mm. Because although she's Donna Haywood, we know that there was a question over her parentage in the season finale when it was being strongly indicated that Ben Horn may have been Donna's father. Now, we do wonder, actually, if given that Doc Haywood is back, Gersten is back as well, but Donna apparently isn't, you know, is that a way to keep Donna's angle still around? You know, is it her son, and then maybe he has taken on his grandfather's name? Yeah, I mean, there's two ways it could have happened. One is if he decided to change his name to Horn in order to, I don't know, try to ingratiate himself into his father's grandfather's business empire. Or did Donna get so angry about the, you know, perceived deception over? who her father was that she changed her name to Horn and then and then had a child so it it's it's possible it might not necessarily be the most plausible option certainly not the simplest option hmm. but it it could work either way it could work and it it could just be that he's rocked up in town not necessarily having even grown up there but has decided oh hey so my uh, my granddad's really rich is he and lives in this town i'm going to go up there and uh, and sell some drugs or whatever it is that he's doing there cause some trouble yeah but i would feel kind of bad for donna as well yeah if that had turned out to be her son i think for anyone yeah. that's the awful <laughs> thing you see a character like that and the problem is the reveal of his surname demands a question of 
who his parents are. And I think it's tragic for anyone's <laughs> for anyone involved, anyone on the list. I think you know it'd be really, it'd be really tough. But I don't know. And the other thing about whether this Richard and Linda thing means something. So the only thing that we came to is whether you know Richard and Linda are actually going to be siblings. Maybe there are two sets of siblings still mm. around. There was that weird thing about two birds, one stone, but I don't think both clues would relate to the same characters. No. Um, but I'm hoping that this could be part of the Richard and Linda thing, at least to start just to start getting those clues being addressed a little bit. But if Coop can solve these three riddles, and at the moment it seems like he's in no fit state to be solving any riddles at all, or even if he remembers anything that's happened to him or what the giant has told him, or if that even happened in the past in the linear storyline that we're following Dougie Coop with now. But when he solved the riddles before, he got given back his ring by the giant. But now, is what's actually missing from him... I don't know, his soul, a little golden ball, is that what he's going to get back hmm. if he solves the riddles? Is the giant going to appear and kind of make him complete again? I, I don't know. Yeah, he might kind of come across a situation where he solves the clues or people around him solve the clues. Hmm. And when the clues are solved, the giant perceives him to be ready to be reinstated fully. Certainly there's that statement from Hawk about facing the shadow self in the Black Lodge, with imperfect courage, will annihilate your soul. Maybe that's what's happened to him. Mm. You know, maybe it's he was slightly fractured when he came out anyway. So to rebuild his soul will require a greater effort on his part and also those around him as well. So obviously, lodge forces are almost pushing him in the right direction. But it might be that the clues are solved by other people this time, and by doing that, that reinstates these. Well, maybe that's the something missing. Um, in the first place. Yes, at the end of all of this, we're left with quite a lot of questions again. It's It's a very different episode to the ones that have come before. Like, they delivered four that have kind of put us on one track, and this one has really subverted all that and made us realise this is a a multi-part piece. It really is going to be a film made up of 18 parts over the next few weeks i think there are several questions that still remain the obvious ones i mean that actually are direct holdovers from the previous one who is it that cole and albert are wanting to visit um that still hasn't been addressed at all yeah and everyone was kind of so excited to find out who that was going to be and then there's just nothing you don't even see them in the episode i mean obviously you know is the body going to be major briggs or linked to major briggs is going to be more of that plot becoming clearer especially now the pentagon are involved in investigating it Certainly we're seeing these ties we were talking to, uh, we were talking about between Buckhorn and Dougie Jones, Dougie Jones, Twin Peaks. Who is going to receive the room key when it comes back at the Great Northern? And are they going to start making connections to, uh, to Cooper after all this time? It needs to be someone who is still at the Great Northern, because it, if it was just a random receptionist who got the key back, they wouldn't understand the significance. But isn't the original receptionist actually back again? Yes, that's true. Actually, the I remember. I mean, the main scene I remember her in is the one where she's excited, telling Ben Horn that M.T. Wentz is coming to Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, the woman who played the receptionist. I think she is back in this. It's very interesting if her role is when she comes back, she realizes that this is a key that of a type that she hasn't seen in twenty five years. Are the Jacoby infomercials going to be the new invitation to love? Oh, that'd be awesome. 
Yeah, it'd be very strange. It'd be really cool to actually have these infomercials sporadically uh, throughout the series, just having various things that uh, Jacoby is selling <laughs> under the guise of you know Doctor Amp, which is also an electricity reference, which is weird. Yeah. Um, just occasionally, if the camera pans over and someone's laptop is left open, and it's just Jacoby with a hammer hitting a gold shovel over and over again. <laughs> Take your way out of the shit. <laughs> Actually, what is weird about that as well is that, you know, Jacoby and Nadine were ones who were seen watching Invitation to Love. Mm. You know, so it's, it's it's not actually that unusual to see now Nadine watching this kind of stuff on TV and potentially Jacoby actually making it as well. And I think one kind of fundamental thing which I still haven't got my head around is how this interaction between good and evil Coop is really going to play out. I still really don't know what evil coop's mission is why bob is involved beyond keeping him out of the black lodge certainly what he's been up to has got to be part of the mystery here and also what it is that's going to bring good coop back to his original self how long that's going to take what the steps are that are going to lead to that and ultimately what it is that he's going to have to do because he hasn't actually got a mission really it's not like there's going to be a mystery to solve at the moment based on what's happened so understanding what the importance of Coop is might tie into the mysteries which are developing in Twin Peaks itself. Because that's the only place where these things are happening. Yeah. And of course, we still got loads of mysteries that existed after the end of the last episode, which haven't progressed any further. We still don't know what Hank and Chip were smuggling around or talking about. Um, we've got our theories about what that might be, but that hasn't progressed we haven't gone back to them at all we still don't know who the billionaire is we still have never gone back to that really quick scene in las vegas between um mr todd and roger yeah even though there's been tons of stuff in vegas none of that has happened yet which does make me wonder if that's in a different timeline to all the rest of the stuff that we're looking at because they just haven't they don't seem to be connected with the the mobsters in any way so i don't know what's going on there but unless the guy who they're, that Mr. Todd is worried about is one of these Mitchum brothers. Mm. Thank you very much for joining us again for our dissection of Twin Peaks The Return Part 5. If you've got any comments or any theories or you want to drop us a line, we're on Twitter at TFCAA. We've got a Facebook page, Time for Cakes and Ale, and uh, you can also drop by our website, timeforcakesandale.com. And if you want to subscribe and get all the Time for Cherry Pie and Coffee episodes, you can subscribe to our main podcast feed, which is Time for Cakes and Ale, and you'll get all the coffee and cherry pie episodes, and also all the Cakes and Ale episodes as well. It all comes from the same feed. And you can get that on iTunes and Podcast Addict and Stitch and all the usual places. Yeah, so that's it for our episode on part five of the return and we'll see you next time for part six yes goodbye goodbye